Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. How much does society owe an individual? And what does an individual owe in return? She's one of the world's leading economists. And she says that how countries pool risks and how countries share resources needs to be re-examined. And that in the 21st century, a new social contract is what we need. We are reading What We Owe Each Other, a new social contract written by Director of the London School of Economics, Minush Shafiq. I started by asking, what's wrong with the existing social contract? Why do we need a new one? Well, let me give you a couple of examples of how we could share risks more intelligently. So let's talk about raising children. In a society that gives women maternity leave, you're basically saying to women, you stay home and take care of your children. If we offered parental leave to both parents or institutional childcare, more readily available and high quality and affordable, you're saying to parents, society's going to support you so that both of you can continue to work and will help you to raise your child. Similarly with employment, uh, today workers turn over much more quickly and employers have less incentive to train their workers because they might leave. And so having the responsibility for training workers being the responsibility of employers may not make sense in that kind of labor market. And maybe society as a whole should share the risk of keeping people's skills up to date so that they can remain employed. Let's talk about the role of companies in all this. In this day and age when we see companies like BlackRock managing more than the GDP of any country outside of China and the US, where companies are growing increasingly larger than states even, do businesses need to be answerable to a broader set of stakeholders? And will businesses have to play a central role in reshaping social contracts? Absolutely. I actually think that um, the debate about social responsibility needs to change. A lot of businesses are now talking about the importance of purpose and multi-stakeholder capitalism. And I think that's great. But I actually think what needs to change are the rules of the game under which business operates. We can't just rely on a handful of good corporate citizens to do the right thing. We need a level playing field so that all businesses play by the same rules. And those rules would include things like, if you have flexible workers, you need to pay them benefits in proportion to how much they work. They also need to include things like paying corporate taxes uh, and not using tax havens. Uh, and the way to do that would be to close down those tax havens and reduce those loopholes so that companies can avoid paying tax in the countries in which they operate. And they also need to include uh, things like, in many countries, I hope, eventually paying carbon taxes uh, and taking responsibility in that way. So I would, I would very much argue that the rules need to change so that all businesses are part of a new social contract rather than having it be voluntary and depending on having a CEO that's progressive. Does this mean that a new social contract will require more government intervention? Well, it's interesting. I think it could, but it also could not. I think that's a social choice. So, uh, you know, countries have very different ways of delivering the social contract. Look at health services, for example, which everyone is focused on these days because of the pandemic. 
In the UK, we have a national health service, which is a government-run, centralized healthcare system. In Europe, they have a system which is more decentralized, in which employers make contributions, and you have both public and private providers. And it works pretty well. So I'm agnostic between whether it's a state system or a mixed system, as long as the results are good. But having said that, there are also some systems that are very poor. The US healthcare system, for example, is expensive, inefficient, and has very unequal outcomes. And so that would be a model that I wouldn't support. But I think in every domain, we need, there are many ways to solve, to deliver a good social contract. Some of them rely on the state, but you can also develop models that are more mixed between the private sector and public provision, which can also work well. What do you see as the greatest challenge arising from disaffection with the current social contract? Well, I think in the wake of COVID, I think people will be looking for something different. I think this has been a trauma for the world and people feel more insecure. Uh, they feel afraid uh, and they realize how much they depend on each other. And so I think this pandemic will change politics in many, many countries and people will be looking for more security. Uh, and they will also be much more aware of the inequalities that the pandemic has revealed. Who has suffered the most? Women, minorities, people in precarious work. And I think people will be looking for solutions that address those inequalities that have shown up so starkly during this pandemic. Do you think the pandemic has led some countries to introduce social protections that do lead to some sort of momentum to change the social contract? Well, I think it has shown what the state can do. Uh, you know, the fact that in many countries, there was a massive fiscal response to support businesses, for example, furlough schemes, lending schemes that were put into place. Uh, and I think many businesses realized how important the state was as an insurer of last resort in a crisis. Similarly, the willingness of people to comply with the wearing of masks, social distancing, tracking and being tracked and traced where they go, uh, showed that there was an appetite to sacrifice some individual liberty for the sake of the common good. And I think that's going to change people's attitudes going forward. Your book outlines key principles that societies must adopt, you write, to meet the challenges of this century. Could you walk us through some of these? So there are three broad principles that I think need to guide us when we think about a future social contract. One is that there should be a minimum by which, below which no one should go. I think... Uh, Every society can afford to do that. And obviously, the level of the minimum will vary depending on how wealthy that society is. I'm not a big advocate of what's called universal basic income, where you just give everybody uh, a fixed amount of cash. I think we can do much better than that. And I think working is part of the social contract. It's how we all contribute to society. Um, so you need a minimum. The second thing is that you need to uh, make sure that risks are shared more sensibly. So, uh, so many risks are born in the wrong place. Uh, just as an example, I, the risk that I gave of parental leave, I don't think parental leave or paying for maternity leave should be paid by employers. I think it should be paid by society to create a level playing field between men and women in the labor market and between small and large firms uh, in, 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 in their competition with each other. 
I also think that risks around things like uh, old age and pensions uh, need to be allocated differently. I think it's important to have auto enrollment so that everyone is enrolled in a pension scheme and everyone gets a minimum state pension. But then there are things you can do on top of that, uh, which provide more security. So that would be my second principle. And my third principle is that we need to invest much more in opportunity. Uh, we need to invest more in each other so that people will be very productive over very long working lives. So one idea in the book is that we should give every young person an endowment of, let's just call it $30,000 for the, over the course of their lives so that they can invest in their skills. Slightly inspired by the Singapore uh, program whereby everyone gets an amount. I would do a bigger amount uh, and uh, I would make sure that people and treat it as an endowment rather than an annual allocation so people could, could invest in, in, large, in, in bigger sorts of uh, skills development. Uh, and I think that would be a great way to invest in the next generation so that they would be highly productive and then able to pay the taxes that will pay for the healthcare needs and pension needs of the older generation. Technology has changed so much of our lives. Do you think it's important that new social contracts provide a new approach to data responsibility and data ownership? Yes, I think there are huge opportunities, obviously, from the availability of technology. Consider a sector like healthcare, where, or education for that matter, where over the course of the last year, we've learned how much more we could do online. People were saying that telemedicine would never really take off because people would never be willing to meet a healthcare professional online. Well, this year we've had to do it. I sometimes joke at the LSE, if I had wanted to move uh, courses online, it would have taken me years to persuade my professors to move a single course online. We had to do it in a week. <laughs> and so, you know, we've all been forced to innovate. Uh, but the ability to really get the benefits of those digital innovations will depend on addressing the concerns around privacy that many people have, particularly in areas like healthcare. And so I think finding a way to have people own their own data and be assured that there will, that data will be protected is a really essential piece of reform we need to do in order to really take advantage of the opportunities that, for example, exist in digital health. You write, this book is not about the welfare state, but you also write that we owe each other more. So what is key to making the new social contract economically viable? How do we afford a new social contract? So parts of my ideas around the new social contract will cost more, like providing everyone with a minimum uh, or ensuring that there are minimum pensions so that nobody is destitute in old age. But large parts of the social contract are also investment. The investments in education will pay off in productivity. The investments in opportunity will also pay off in productivity and higher output. One of my favorite pieces of research are looking at what happened to productivity in the United States when women entered the labor market? And we saw a massive increase in productivity in the U.S. and in the U.K. because suddenly you brought all these new skills and talents into the labor force. If we supported women to stay in the labor market more, we would get big productivity gains. Similarly, research has shown uh, about what would happen if children who were born into poor families were given the opportunity to innovate 
and develop and invent new things at the same rate as children who are born into rich families. And what they find is that these lost Einsteins, as we call them, would quadruple the rate of innovation in a country. And so I think a lot of these opportunity enhancements will actually increase overall income and, be, and enable us to afford to support each other more. What sort of political system do you think would enable this type of new social contract that we are speaking of? So it's quite clear that countries that have more accountable political systems have better social contracts, and the research shows that. Interestingly, in countries that have presidential winner-takes-all political systems, like the US and the UK, politicians tend to focus on delivering better outcomes for the majority in the middle, because that's where the votes are. Countries that have proportional representation tend to have more generous social contracts because you need coalitions to get elected, and therefore they tend to spread the benefits around the different groups. Countries that are authoritarian have very little pressure on them to deliver those social contracts. Uh, and so I think there is, there is a difference in, the political, in, in how the political system responds. But accountability takes many forms. Uh, you know, you could argue that the Chinese Communist Party is, a, you know, was a very effective count, accountability mechanism and making sure that people were appointed on merit and had to deliver good social outcomes uh, to get advanced. I think the other really interesting finding that, we, that I cite in the book is that politicians often think that they get re-elected. The way to get elected again is to increase GDP. The old you know, adage of it's the economy stupid and people vote their pocketbook. But actually what our research has shown at the LFZ is that the best predictor of how people, whether people re-elect a politician is whether their well-being improves during their tenure. And that well-being is defined not as GDP, but their physical and mental health, their sense of community and whether they have good relationships and whether they have meaningful wealth. And so I'm trying to spread the word to politicians that if you want to get re-elected, improve your population's well-being rather than focus on GDP. What is at stake if countries look away from creating a new social contract? I think we're at a critical juncture. I think there are moments in history when there are major upheavals and countries can go one way or another. And I'm not naive. It, it could go badly. Countries have taken, you know, have made bad choices in history at moments of crises. You know, one only needs to remember what happened in the world uh, after World War One, or after the 2008 financial crisis, when not a lot changed. Uh, on the other hand, there have been moments in history when big positive changes happen. I was very inspired by the Beveridge Report, which was written by one of my predecessors at the LSE after World War Two, which fundamentally changed the relationship between citizens and the state in the UK and created the National Health Service and unemployment insurance and pensions for everyone. So I do think this is a moment when big changes can happen. And I'm hoping that my book will help people realize that there is an alternative path, an alternative way we could organize our societies that would mean better outcomes for everyone. 
You've spent 25 years working in development. You are director of the London School of Economics. What, from your own experiences, working on the ground, working on policies, have made it to some of the arguments in this book? Well, my own personal experience uh, was one of coming from a family that was relatively well off, losing everything during the revolution in Egypt in the 1960s, uh, and then kind of climbing back up uh, the ladder of educational quality, uh, and then going on to have a, a career in, in, in international economics and development. And I think that experience certainly instilled in me a deep curiosity about the architecture of opportunity in society. How is it that some people advance? And how is it that others don't? And what are the circumstances? And how can we create an architecture of opportunity that gives everyone a chance? There's a wonderful philosopher, John Rawls, who wrote a book called The Theory of Justice. And he talks about creating a fair society behind a veil of ignorance. And that veil of ignorance is one in which you don't know where you're going to be in that society. You could be at the bottom or you could be at the top. And you want to create a society that no matter where you start, you would be, you would have a sense that it was fair. And so for me, I'm very aware of the fact that I could have had a very different path in life. Uh, I could have, uh, you know, been a poor village girl with, uh, with very few opportunities in my life. Uh, and that sense, I think, has uh, made me really appreciate the importance of creating creating a society in which everyone, no matter where they start, gets a fair chance. We've been reading What We Owe Each Other, a new social contract by Minoush Shafiq, director of the London School of Economics, at 36, the youngest ever vice president of the World Bank, former deputy manager of the IMF, former deputy governor of the Bank of England. What We Owe Each Other, a new social contract is the title. I'm Michelle Martin. Thank you for reading with me. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.